Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Gary, uh, you know, we tend to talk a lot on this program uh, about the news, but we have what I think is a pretty important uh, anniversary, and that is uh, we're coming into the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. And I know you and, and even me were great followers of uh, NASA as we were growing up as, as, as kids. But uh, you stumbled across uh, uh, the Internet uh, quite a find. Uh, to tell us about it. Yes, yeah, so uh, here's my admission. I am a space nerd and was a space nerd at the time, back in 69, when Apollo 11 landed. So I was bouncing around online the other day and came across the press kit that NASA put now, out. Now, now tell them how many pages that, that press it's kit is. Two, it's 250 Pages. Now, 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 for those of you listening, if somebody told you that they had just created a <laughs> press kit for a major event and it was 250 pages, they'd probably think you were crazy. Yeah, you, you throw them out of the room. Right. right? You'd say, go, go back and, you know, cut it by uh, 240 pages. <laughs> and, and if you go through this, and we'll post this on the Crux website, it is a model of transparency. Yeah. It, you know, and a couple things I would say, um, you know, in, in retrospect, we're looking at it, Mike, but everything that actually happened was depicted either in words or sort of rudimentary illustrations in that press kit. And um, I, I love the fact that the press release was 17 pages long. Mm -hmm. And you and I were talking. I just love the fact that there's no gratuitous quote in it from the president or the head of NASA. No promise of parades. Just, exactly. No promise of parades or flyovers. It is just pure fact about what was going to go on in that mission. And and when we get it posted, I would suggest to listeners, they go to like, for example, uh, page 71, where there's a listing of go, no-go decisions mm -hmm. on the mission. In other words, if we don't hit this marker, if we don't have this much fuel at this situation, we scrub the mission. Right. Right. I, I don't think you'd get that kind of detail today from uh, a government agency uh, as, as or a company is, or a company. Right. It's just pure. And it's so if you're nostalgic about the 50th anniversary of uh, Apollo 11 and you really like um you know, comparing how we do our job today to then, boy, it was, they did a great job, but it's, it's really entertaining to, to point through. Well, and, and, and to your point, it's amazing how clearly it walks the media through precisely yeah. what they were going to see and yep. kind of step by step, go, no go. Uh, and in ways that probably convinced uh, a lot of media to say, okay, we know exactly what we're going to do as this unveils. Um, right. And it, it gave them a roadmap. And in, in, in some vein, you know, we still want to give that roadmap, but we're so persistent about being, you know, uh, short and taut and 
and, and sometimes we miss that value of actually exactly. being able to lead the witness in a very valued <laughs> way. You know, there's no false sense of bravado here. There was no certainty in mm-hmm. the press kit. Mm-hmm. You know, that we're going to do this, and this will be a great moment for the country. Well, and it had never was, been done before, too. I mean, that's, that's the other right. element, right? Yes, and it introduces the element of risk into the mission that maybe some journalists and others, you know, there had been successful uh, Apollo missions before this, certainly eight, and there had been disastrous Apollo 1 with the fire that killed three folks, so uh, three astronauts. I, I just love it, and um, I... I so much so that we'll we'll put it on on the website. So where so what, were you? Well, well, I where actually, I, when, well, I think that day I was playing uh, um, in Babe Ruth uh, baseball league in Southern <laughs> California. Uh, you know, getting ready to go on in the fall to I think seventh or eighth grade. So there you have it. What were you doing? Wow, I was I was you and I are going to cry over this. I was at Yankee Stadium. Oh my goodness! And, Did we win? Yeah. <laughs> well, we did rarely, and I looked it up. Dean Michael, uh, you know, had a base hit in the eleventh inning for the Yankees. They didn't win many games that year, Mike, but uh, they won that one against the the old Washington Senators. But oh, wow. what I remember of it was when they landed on the moon. That was the old rudimentary scoreboard with a few. They were able to form a few words, and they said something like "The Eagles landed" or "They're on the moon" uh-huh. on the scoreboard. And then Bob Shepard, the old great uh, Yankee PA announcer, came on and said something like, as I recall, uh, you'll be happy to know that Apollo 11 has landed safely on the moon. Though Bob did it in more centurion tones than I can. And both teams came out to the first and third baseline, the Senators and the Yankees, and there was a moment of silence. And um, so it was really a great moment to be in a place like Yankee Stadium when this happened. And as I recall, they they played America the Beautiful, I think, and then resumed the game. Yeah. So uh, it's a great memory for me. But, yeah, I was probably more thrilled that the Yankees won the game, Mike, than <laughs> the moon landing. But, you know, they're my priorities right there. So, well, I can't uh, remember anyway. I can't remember if my Babe Ruth League team won that day. <laughs> Uh, but I do know that that early that evening I was huddled around the television with family members oh, and my yeah. grandparents, and we were just glued, and yeah. it was just unbelievable. We we went back to a friend's house. We left the stadium. I don't think we stayed for extra innings, um, but we went back to a friend's house. We watched them on television, and as I recall, my brother reminded me of this the other day. Uh, for some reason, we went up on this, including the adults, mm-hmm. went up on this friend's house, the roof of the house, to mm-hmm. look at the moon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh. we, we made a big party out of it, I'm sure, but uh, that's where we were. Now, moving back towards more of the news category that we usually uh, discuss in this session, uh, we'll move from walking on the moon to a walkout of employees yeah. at the Boston headquarters for Wayfair uh, here in late June. And uh, just uh, curious as to your thoughts. Clearly what what they were doing is uh, the Wayfair employees had staged a walkout because their company, 
was selling bedding and other goods uh, to be used in these border detention centers run yeah. by ICE uh, for yeah. immigrants. And I think they had a contract of like $200,000. Uh, employees caught wind of this and they weren't happy. And yeah. so, you know, like a lot of uh, uh, employees with tech companies uh, uh, on the West Coast, they decided here on the East Coast that they, too, would uh, show their lack of support for the company's position on this uh, yeah. by staging a walkout. Yeah. And, and I think the key is, Mike, the, when you set expectation among your employees that you're going to be active, on social issues, um, then you better be. And you better know where you're selling your products to mm -hmm. and to whom and, and what they do with them, how they use them. Mm -hmm. But I think the key to this is the research that you did mm -hmm. on the mission statement of Wafer, yeah. because I think it sets up that expectation among employees. Yeah, because I, I was curious when I first saw the story and said, well, you know, is there a mismatch of expectations between the company and its employees. Um, and so I went online. Um, at first, what I came across was also that uh, and I didn't come. It wasn't a, it wasn't a news release from the company, but it, I found it in a in a online um, first. I think it was shared in a tweet when I first saw it, uh, but was the company's position on what had transpired, and they wrote, uh, as a retailer, it is standard practice to fulfill orders for all customers, and we believe it is our business to sell to any customer who is acting within the laws of the countries within mm -hmm. which we operate. Uh, and then the, it, it went on. It said, we believe all of our stakeholders, employees, customers, investors, and suppliers included are best served by our commitment to fulfill our orders. I read that, and then I said, I'm curious as to what this company's mission statement is. And then I found uh, something that was labeled our mission. And it, it, it says in part, it says, at Wayfair, we believe that strong communities and good business are inextricably linked. We partner with organizations that play a meaningful role in creating safe and comfortable living spaces because we believe that a secure home is not only wow. a basic human need, but also the foundation for well-being. It goes on. But it's like when you see wow. words that say, you know, <laughs> we are, you know, that the, the, we believe that what we do is we play a meaningful role in creating safe in comfortable living spaces, secure home. And then you pair that up against to at least the stories around the these ice run yeah. detention centers. And then all of a sudden you think, wow, you know, there's something dissonant uh, happening here. Uh, but I think the bigger story for a lot of our listeners who work for companies and organizations is what this means in terms of are we going to see more employee activism, particularly right. in companies that have kind of held themselves out as having, you know, being a value-based organization. That's um, right. So, you know, Workers yeah. clearly, potential employees clearly uh, identify with employers uh, when they, you know, are values based. They want to work for companies that they can believe in. And the challenge, I think, for companies is that 
employees, as they look at their work life and they look at their personal life, they see them being blurred. And right. if there's dissonance between what a company says it is and what it ultimately does, I think you end up with situations like uh, the walkout Wait, at, at, at Wayfair. Wayfair. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's usually or traditionally in the past, that pressure has been solely external. Right. All right. I, you know, I remember at DE, you know, we, we got pressure from all kinds of external sources on, you know, where are plastics? Uh, used in the making of um, bombs, you know, landmines. Right. Um, where, how are our jet engines used by the military for righteous reasons or, or not? You never heard a word internally mm-hmm. about any of that. And the expectation has so flipped mm-hmm. um, that the internal pressure is likely to be greater in some cases than whatever you can hear from stakeholders these days. And, and, so for a CCO or somebody in communications doing public affairs, et cetera, understanding not only the attributes of your product and helping to market them, but how they are used and by whom is so, so important. Yeah. And, um, you know, this one to me, I, just hearing those words mm-hmm. about safe and secure and the Justice Department's claim that a toothbrush well, wasn't you know needed for these, uh, for these folks in these facilities, boy, it seems like. Wayfair seems like a great company, but something um, they should have seen coming and, and addressed internally um, before it became, it, yeah. it boiled over to the point that the employees felt like they needed to walk out. Yeah, and I think it's important that we take a look at this as, as a trend. I mean, you know, last yeah. November, uh, you know, there were tens of thousands of Google staffers you know, yeah. who also staged a walkout, different circumstances. It was how the company had previously handled uh, some sexual harassment claims. Uh, there have also been other companies there where um, employees have staged walkouts related actually to uh, business that their organizations have done or were looking at doing uh, with either U.S. Customs or the Border Patrol or ICE. Uh, I think Salesforce had one. Microsoft had had some employees question what yep. they were doing in terms of contracts. Um, so I, I also wonder, you know, does this set the stage uh, not only for other similar uh, situations, but it also may cause some companies to pause about, yes. you know, do we actually take a stand on certain social issues that aren't necessarily uh, things that we would view as our issues or naturally it's view so as our co- issues? It's, I, I complete, it's so complicated, Mike. Mm-hmm. You know, employ, companies clearly do want to do the right thing today. Mm-hmm. You know, most of them. Sure. I, and, and there was a column by David Leonhardt in the Times, I think, last week. You know, and the headline on it was, um, you know, AT&T, something like this, AT&T fights diversity. Mm-hmm. Now, there's probably not a company that I know of that has been more supportive of diversity uh, across, you know, different categories than AT&T. And, and, and Randall Stevenson, the CEO, gave a speech about this a while back. But the point that the Times was making was that while saying that, um, AT&T had also given to some politicians, government officials, who were completely opposed to things like um, gay marriage 
mm-hmm. uh, and other expanded or equitable rights, equal rights for LGBT community. So once you say it and once you put the you know stake in the ground, uh, the expectations for you rise everywhere. And yeah. I, I thought the, the responses and, and the Times uh, got responses from several companies, including my old one, GE, um, they all espoused, um, you know, uh, they all espoused diversity as a goal, as a common goal in the organization, but didn't explain how that related to this political giving. Yeah. And I thought the responses were very corporate. So it's complex, not only in the decision making, can you support someone who's very pro-business, very pro-pharma, let's say, if you're Pfizer, mm-hmm. with political donations? But if they've got a different view than you on on equal rights, and how do you how do you discuss that internally? Yeah, how do you square it all up? And, and how do you square it all up? Yeah, incredibly so, complex. So, what did you think of Wayfair's response? I mean, so they responded very matter of factly. This is about business. Then they followed it yep. up, and they made a hundred thousand dollar contribution. Uh, to the Red Cross, and yep. it was interesting. Some employees initially said, "You know, that's 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 great," uh, but the other thing that also transpired is some employees even suggesting that rather than giving the money to the Red Cross, which really didn't have a direct impact on the situation on the border, that they would have been better off uh, giving it to an organization called Refugee and Immigration Center for Education and Legal Services that is more on point on on the intended issue. Yeah, I I think, I'll I'll be brief, the $100,000 donation is a shiny object Mm -hmm. and and not effective. Yeah. And I think the employees are exactly right that um, you need to... um, if you're going to do something like that, it has to be specific to the issue and well, helping the people um, who are in those facilities somehow. I, I just think it's yeah. a journey out. Yeah, the other thing that I think is, is important is, and, and you and I have discussed this before, is that when you have a challenge, uh, the best thing is to actually try and listen to the aggrieved parties. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, there's always that sense with people yelling and screaming to make a quick move, and yeah. sometimes that quick move isn't the right move. Um, Now, you talked about diversity, and one of the things that uh, we saw here recently is the U.S. uh, women's soccer team uh, take Mm -hmm. the World Cup for the second time in a row, and I think uh, for the fourth time overall. Um, And as they won, there there was a chant coming from the crowd simply because a lot of the athletes on the team had been very outspoken and had actually, uh, you know, engendered a legal claim uh, around pay equity. And then the chant after they won that came out of the crowd from, I'm assuming, Americans in the crowd was equal pay, equal pay, equal pay. Um, In the context that we just talked about with employee activism, um, and, and here you have uh, one, I, I mean, you look at uh, USA soccer, uh, you know, the women's team now having done it as many times as they've done it. Uh, the USA men's team um, 
may not ever win this in our lifetime. Um, <laughs> and yet, if the men had won, they would have stood to make twice as much or more uh, than the women who won. And similarly, I would argue that the women also have attracted a much larger audience than the yeah. USA men's team has. Well, how do we begin to think about an issue like this, one about the team, but in society more general. And we've got all of these companies over the last two or three years that have signed uh, various equal, you know, pay, equal yeah. pay or pay equity uh, documents saying that over some period of time, we're going to improve, we're going to get better. Uh, but in some ways, it's like it should be easier for them to manage than maybe it should be in a sport where you've also got the complexities of, you know, how much money does a sport bring in? Uh, what does an athlete actually have to do in order to win and all these other things? But I think it's it, it, the context of the chance, the context yeah. of the team winning and the context of this increased level of employee activism that we see in the Wayfair case, what does this mean, do you think, for American corporations? Well, I, I, you know, it's, it's in some ways ironic that um, a women's soccer team will probably do more to advance the cause of equal pay than anything any politician or company has ever done. Right. And I, I think that's great. And I, I don't think, you know, I, I think companies... Um, it, it, it's a much clearer picture for me or issue for me on equal pay than it is maybe in sports, which is complicated by uh, the relative popularity of male and female, although I advocate equal pay there, and I'll, I'll explain why in a minute. But I think for companies, if you're not moving toward equal pay, equitable treatment in the workplace, all these other things, uh, it's going to be thrust upon you and you better do it quickly. And one of the things, I think I mentioned this before, Mike, is, you know, Richard Edelman at Edelman just did it. Yeah. Right? I mean, he just said, we're going to do it. And, mm -hmm. and he just went ahead and did it. And if I were a CEO today, I'd be thinking very strongly about that, just yeah. going ahead and doing it. Now, in sport, you can argue, you know, that the men's game is more popular. It creates more revenue for U.S. soccer, all this kind of thing. I think that is a losing argument. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I saw in all these articles about the U.S. women's team was that there were something like 4,000 um, women playing soccer, young girls and mm -hmm. women playing soccer in the United States, mm -hmm. something like 20 to 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. Today there are 700,000. Amazing. Right? So from a sporting, from the sport standpoint, no one has done more to promote the game and make it profitable and popular than the U.S. team, mm -hmm. the women's team. Mm -hmm. So they have to be treated equitably from a pay standpoint, in my point of view. Yeah. And look, if you're paying, if you're paying for performance, there it is, right? Yeah. Well, and 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 you think in especially in a nonprofit organization, which they are, uh, they should be operating in a more egalitarian space uh, exactly. when it comes to things like pay. Um, in addition to that, it's also interesting to note. Um, that, you know, we increasingly see local and state governments with initiatives. Uh, New York City actually passed uh, legislation that says an employer can't ask you how much you make. 
in your right. current job as they're looking to hire you into a next one, because that's part of uh, the issue around pay equity is that uh, if you start at a lower base, as what happens for a lot of women happens also for a lot of minorities as they first enter the workforce, uh, then they're always left behind because the new employer is just looking for enough of an incremental bump to encourage you yeah. to come to work for them. Uh, and, and I would just say one more thing. Mm-hmm. These women wear the colors of the United States, yep. right? You know, and and so, you know, part of the greatness of this country is the the standard that we set, the example that we set yep. for the world. I, I still believe that, even though some of that has been diminished recently. Look, if you're going to go to Europe and represent the United States, the men and women ought to be, they ought to be able to um, stand proud and, and talk about other things other than equal pay. The fact that the, the chant in the stands is equal pay after winning this great World Cup yeah. I think, diminishes the country to a certain degree. Well, yeah, and, and in some ways, actually, you would think pay equity would be something uh, that would be more easily ab- embraced even in the corporate yeah. world, uh, just yeah. in the sense that you know one could ar- maybe make an argument that one team or a group of people in a particular sport or in entertainment uh, provide you know a, a larger economic base maybe right uh, that's not true in business you know no. in, in business that's what I mean. if, if 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 you're smart if you're able it doesn't matter if you're male or female uh, what matters is you know what are um, you doing uh, to advance uh, the business and the business, it's in their best interest, it would seem, uh, to treat all workers equally in a way that uh, makes them feel, it's makes all employees clearly. feel as though that they're not only safe, but they're valued. Exactly. And and so I'm just, I, I'm happy for the women because I love sports, and but I'm also happy that they're, performance and their excellence has moved this issue onto the front Mm -hmm. burner even more. Mm -hmm. And I'm also happy about the chat we're going to have with our next guest. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So we're going to have our our conversation with the head of the Institute for Public Relations. And uh, we've both gotten to know her very, very well. Oh, she's Uh, doing a great job. And so it's a great job. And so let's go to that interview. Tina McCorkendale. Here she comes. Well, today our guest on The Crux is Tina McCorkendale, and she's doing a little happy dance here in the (laughs) the Crux studio to be here. Thank you, Tina, for being here. Tina is the president and CEO of the Institute for Public Relations, which has been around since 1956, and that Mike and I have been fortunate enough to be trustees of over the past, uh, for me, decade, I guess, Mm -hmm. um, as a trustee. Great organization. I'm going to say more about it in a minute. uh, and what it does, the science beneath the art of public relations, and just a fantastic organization. Tina, why don't you uh, start by telling us about IPR and the work that it does? Sure. So we are a research nonprofit foundation, and we do research that matters in the profession. And what that looks like is we have a fantastic board of trustees that helps guide the work that we do. 
And we try to focus on what we see as the current emerging trends in PR, and then hopefully give uh, CCOs, mid to senior level professionals, some insights to make their jobs better. Terrific. Yeah, in fact, one of those studies has been pretty interesting to me as somebody who's been interested in diversity and inclusion for a long time. And you're our first uh, woman to actually lead the organization in terms of the Institute for Public Relations, and I believe also maybe the first PhD to lead the organization as well. Uh, but uh, we did this study with KPMG, Women in Leadership. Tell us about it. Yeah, so this is really exciting. Uh, and, and just to give you sort of background about how things come about. Um, one of my friends, Chris Montero, was the CCO at the mm-hmm. time, and he had two star employees who were really interested in diversity. And he said, hey, can we chat? And he said, I have these two superstars who are really interested in this topic. What would you think about working with them? And that's sort of how it came to be. And we just launched the first part of the study. It's a two-part study. Uh, the first series, we did about 10 focus groups with both men and women. It's really critical to have men in the conversation mm-hmm. and not just women talking to women. And uh, the second part of the study, we're uh, going, about to launch a quantitative survey in the field. And what we asked questions about was about mentorship and how much of a role mentorship plays in the ability of women to um, ascend into a higher position. We talked about work-life fit, which is a challenge both for men and women. Uh, and we also discussed organizational policies. And with all that, we gave some very strong recommendations of what organizations can do today to make a difference in uh, the, the makeup and making sure that everyone has an equal opportunity to ascend. So, Tina, how do you then get that research into the hands, like you say, of CCOs and their teams? Yeah, so there's a couple ways that we do it. Uh, One is we have our great trustees, a board of about 70 that we send it to, and then try to give them prepackaged information. That's quite manageable board, right? It is manageable board. But you know, I always always go to my, uh, some of my colleagues who have a board of 170, and I'm like, 70 is a piece of cake. It sounds really easy compared to that. Um, But we also, we, uh, I did a PR Week podcast. It was in PR Week, PR News, some of the industry publications. So, yeah, we're really excited about it. So in terms of the findings, uh, what's interesting to me is this is a profession that, you know, three decades ago was populated mostly by men. Um, And today it's mostly populated by women. But in leadership roles, Mm -hmm. um, we find that there aren't as many women as one might think. Talk a little bit about those findings. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. So what we wanted to find out is sort of were there barriers that um, both from men and women perspective, and we were really excited because we uh, had, and they were both CCO level agency heads and mid-level professionals, and men were very honest. I mean, some of them said, well, the C-suite's still sexist, so (laughs) until you change the culture, right? And just very direct and honest about it. And... um, you know, one of our uh, other contentions is that, you know, organizational policies aren't very egalitarian. So mm-hmm. if you give a female employee 12 weeks and then you give a male employee sometimes no uh, paternity leave, right. then you're still sort of reifying that the yeah. standard, mm-hmm. right? So people should get equal opportunity, especially because if you give, usually when people have kids, it's in the prime of their career as they're yeah. ascending. Yes. So someone gets sort of a benefit. And pay gap, that's an easy yeah, thing. Yeah, pay equity issues. Yes, pay one. equity. That's an easy thing organizations can do today by just looking at people and make sure in similar job roles. That yeah, I think Edelman, Edelman has did a study of all of their people in the agency and went through and, and rectified that. That does mm-hmm. seem like an easy, mm-hmm. easier 
thing to fix. I noticed you used the word in the study fit as opposed to balance. Because you can't balance. (laughs) Tell us about how you get to that fit or balance. Um, champagne. No. <laughs> Break it open. <laughs> Where is it? That was one of my writer. Um, yeah, I know. It's a challenge. And, you know, for even, even I think, you know, we talked to some of the senior level and it's for even the mid-level, it's a challenge for them too, because sort of male roles have become, you know, more egalitarian in, in the workplace. And it's, um, it's 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 a huge challenge. I have three kids and um, husband and a dog, and uh, you know it's. But for everyone and in this industry, yeah. compared to others, this is not a nine to five industry. No. You're always on, even if you're on vacation, as I know you both have yeah. most likely mm-hmm. experienced. It's I, I've gotten called back from two called vacations. Back. Oh, yes. me too. Yeah, yeah. Me too. Yes, you get called back, or you know, if there's a crisis and yeah. you're up late at night and you're you're missing things. And yeah. So yeah. So it's more of like fitting it rather than balancing, and gotcha. uh, mixing personal and professional too is mm-hmm. is also a way to do it. So it's not separate. So as I said, Tina, my my relationship with IPR goes back more than a decade. I've been a trustee for I think that long. And, you know, for me as a rookie CCO back in the mid-2000s, it was great because the board is big. I got to meet a lot of people, uh, built my network through IPR, and really began to build my understanding of research, of uh, analytics, of the insights that they can bring. And one thing I would say to people, one of the things that you've done is uh, during your tenure at IPR is reorganize the website so it is really searchable. You can, if you're looking for yeah, much more accessible. Exactly. If you're looking for data, you know, research on organizational communications, culture, et cetera, you can find it on IPR. There's a lot of good work. And one of the things that I love you're doing is making it translatable, right, to us, you know, CCOs who don't have a research background. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and some of the other things you've been doing in your four years as as head of IPR? Yeah, so the website, um, it was funny. I had an industry partner who was giving an update at a recent collaboration meeting and said that they were redoing the website this summer. And we all in the room laughed because (laughs) it is not a summer project. It's like a two-year ordeal. So we did that. And so on our uh, website, we have different centers and commissions of excellence, so a great organizational communication Research Center, which probably has the largest source of articles specifically dealing with internal comms that are available, Um, and a really fantastic measurement commission. Uh, That that topic still seems to be a big challenge for our industry and the best ways and most valid ways to measure um, what we do. Uh, and then we have a behavioral insights research center and a digital media research center. So we try to build up, build up that work. Uh, IPR has also added some programs. Uh, one of our, our um, what we try to do, you talked about translating. We try to bring what's happening in the academy to the profession and translate that. So we started a conference, and it's called The Bridge. And it really is a split attendance of professionals, most of them senior level professionals, and academics so we can come together and have conversations because sometimes we go to conferences and they talk about these issues that have already been very well researched in the academic space right. but they're not not accessible. known that's what i yes. exactly and mike you're speaking i uh, am week, right? he I is am. he is and and that's the key for ipr i i just 
You know, we all bang our fists on the table as practitioners and said, I wish there's some research on this. And if you do right. some looking, it's actually there. It's actually there. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and then the journal, right? Yes. Yeah, so we have a journal. It's the Public Relations Journal that we partner with PRSA. And those are, they're very academic oriented, but they're, they're uh, research that matters to the profession. Mm-hmm. And really what we're trying to focus on is, is getting the research out there, but also building awareness for IPR and who, oh, and I should say, we have a weekly research letter. Mm-hmm. That's right. And all our research, the best thing is, it costs nothing. It's all available for free. Yes. Yeah. So, yes. And, and Tina, I should have, uh, at the beginning, introduced you. Could you, you're an academic um, by your training, I guess, education. You tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I, um, I started out as a professor, mm-hmm. college professor, in previous and in uh, previous to this current position. I've been there almost four years, if you can believe it. I was a uh, tenured professor teaching students, mm-hmm. but I was also very active in the industry. So I was an IPR yes. board member and in page before I um, was offered the CEO position. And you worked for some oh, and I worked great for, research I companies. did. I yeah. worked. I was a, a senior research analyst with some big financial and logistical clients, which I think is really important experience because it really helped me um, to understand the demands of clients. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you know, and, and I think when I'm you think about recovery. the organization, you know, it's it's kind of married, uh, kind of the role of the academic and the role of the practitioner, and you know, with Tina, you kind of have both. Exactly. Um, it, the other thing that I'm interested in is is the fact that a lot of the research that's being done is is more practical uh, as, as well as a lot of it is more newsworthy in the sense that it seems like there's more attention to what's in the news and what we're doing and I know you have another study sort of rolling up that's going to tackle the subject of fake news yes yeah, so the study I'm really excited about um, I'm really excited about all our studies, I should say. <laughs> but uh, this one is, I'm particularly yeah, Who's my ugliest about. child? Yeah. Who is my least favorite? No. Um, and why I really like this study is it's really one of the first times that we've gone very external to the industry, but still have some very valuable insights from the industry. And um, at a board meeting last year, our trustees said they really wanted, we need to do stuff on fake news. And that yes. term is thrown around. Yeah all the time and used a lot of times incorrectly. So what we did is, um, and uh, Public Affairs Council and AFLAC both helped sponsor that study. Uh, What we did is we asked questions. We gave people a really long laundry list of potential people and groups and politicians. And even we put PR practitioners, CEOs, companies, and asked how much do you trust information from these Mm -hmm. following sources? Um, And then we said, we gave a definition of disinformation, specifically that it's used to manipulate or spread false information intentionally, which is different than misinformation, which can be unintentional. Yes. Um, And we ask who, to what extent do these sources contribute? To what extent should these sources be responsible for fixing the problem? And how well are they fixing the problem? That's great. Yes. That, that is great. I hope PR practitioners do really well in this. I'm a little worried now, um, Tina. Are, yeah. are academics and professors <laughs> in that study? They are. I can't recall the numbers. I'll say that there's we are we are definitely having a trust crisis. A credibility problem. Truth decay, you know, yes. in our um, 
unfortunately. I mean, we did better than marketers and advertisers, <laughs> <laughs> but we did yeah. about the same as CEOs. Yeah. So well, I really love the definition. That right. I think is really helpful on its on its own. Right. Let alone without the data, and and the analysis. So Tina is here at BU. She speaks to Mike's class uh, on media relations. On Mike? media relations. Yeah. Uh, speaking to my class and Don Wright's class on ethics. I always ask students ahead of time, Tina, questions they'd like to ask you. And one I thought was really interesting is, given your, to Mike's point, broad view that as a practitioner uh, working for some great professional firms, as an academic, now running, a, a I guess, a trade professional organization, what do you think is going to happen in communications and public relations? I know it's a broad question over the next five years, but you put all of that together. We've had so much change and change is a constant. What's next? Yeah. So um, Mike has already sort of heard this from me. So <laughs> apologies, Mike. Sorry. That's all right. That's a good question. <laughs> yeah. So I, if I look at what the history and what we've seen, right, to sort of look yeah. at what our trends are, um, we had tremendous growth in the past 25 years with digital. So if I look back 25 years ago, I think that was the first time I really was exposed to the Internet. Right. Right. And we see how much that has fundamentally changed who we are. Um, and a lot of that is because of a concept called Moore's Law, which means that the number of processors doubles every about two years. I think now it's like 2.3 years. And that's why we moved from having really slow dial-up connections to having, you know, even 5G networks in some mm -hmm. places. So because of that, because of Moore's Law allows the doubling, in the next five to 10 years, we're going to see that really take off. So automation will improve artificial intelligence. And what we'll see is that some of the decisions that we make will be guided by um, just the wealth of information that's already available to us. Continue to see increases in video, continue to see increases in immersive technology. Mm -hmm. So virtual reality. And we were just having a conversation the other day. And I think in the next five to 10 years, I mean, we're going to, virtual reality is going to be so commonplace and how you can change behavior by having these immersive experiences. And what also we'll see is how automation is going to impact the workforce. So uh, these sort of replaceable jobs and how as we, mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. communicators, handle that both on a societal level and on a internal level, right? So you have AT&T who has this great future ready initiative that's reskilling their employees. Right. So other companies may just lay people off, but that can have a huge impact on society. So how to manage yeah. that, deal with so, that. So it, it reminds me of something that was uh, once said to me a couple of years ago, that the pace of change will never be slower. That's right. And, and you look at even what we're already seeing on the journalistic side in, in, in terms of even how our newspapers are being put together. Um, Robotic reporting yeah. and such. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what would, Tina, just to follow up, so how should a person who runs a big team, uh, let's say at a, a big company, how should they be looking at skilling, you know, skills mm -hmm. on their team, given what you think all and how all this is going to come, which I agree with completely, what should you be thinking about five years out? Yeah, I think it's a matter of really sitting down and taking the time to look at what people do and their job skills. The The challenge is, even for me, is, 
where is that time? Right. <laughs> you know, how do you find the time to really... Got to invent that 25-hour day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, like close the doors and sit there and look at the team and say, how is this best organized? What we, can we do? Because, you know, we're, if you hire people on the measurement front, I mean, that could easily be replaced in five to 10 years because right. all that will be easier to automate. So it's also taking the long view in what your employees are doing now and saying, where are we going to be? And maybe we have to take person X who's doing more data analysis and train them to do more something else. Right. But I think the rate that we are currently, we are behind schedule for our profession. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. It was sort of at an inflection point in a lot of ways. Right. And then someone else, so someone else can come along and say. That's right. This is, we have the skill, we have these abilities. It's, it's very space. strategic. Yep. It will always be, what we'll see is that even regardless of automation, PR has to be a strategic function. You have to be a counselor and that will not change. Not go away. That I will agree. not change. So listen, Tina, this is great. I should have uh, given you the opportunity to give a pitch for the IPR website, right? And now- uh, I feel like you just did. I, I did, but <laughs> what, the address, what's the URL? Yes, it's www.institute4forpr.org. And we have a free weekly research letter you should sign up for, because yes. if you're not reading it, you're you're already behind. Exactly. You I just get replaced. I just I still I go to the website. I still print things out though. You know, I feel like such an analog. Gary, you know, the I know. environment. I know it. I know it. Well anyway. Well listen, <laughs> Tina McCorkendale, Dr. McCorkendale, is one of the most respected figures in our profession. Um, and we're really glad to have you here, Tina, both in the Crux studio, the luxurious Crux studio. And on campus here at BU, we really, really appreciate it. So thanks for coming in. Thank you. And you two are just amazing, you know, role models and stalwarts in the field. So this is great. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Take care.